On this edition of Civic, as wildfires rage, unprecedented heat waves kill, and cities are drowned in heavy storms, climate worry is turning to despair. Despair is a permission to disengage. And as much as it may feel awful, it is a protection from actually grappling with solutions. And so put aside the despair, find the areas that you can engage in. Taking action is one of the ways to make a real contribution and also to, do, to manage those horrific, uncomfortable feelings. I'm Mel Baker, in for Laura Wenis. This is Civic. For decades, scientists have been warning us that our refusal to reduce greenhouse gas emissions would lead to a climate crisis. During that time, activists in public and private life have been ringing the alarm and fighting hard to limit emissions, all the while with a sense of dread over what the future would bring. Now it seems that future is here. July was the hottest month recorded ever in world history. Heat waves, firestorms, more powerful hurricanes and storms, and a massive drought, of course, here in the western United States. Climate dread threatens to become climate despair. So I wanted to ask the question, how do you continue to organize and fight after the chance to prevent the crisis entirely has perhaps passed? How do you deal with the grief and yet carry on? With us for this episode of Civic is Lily Cohen, youth organizer at 350.org, Bay Area youth-led mobilizations team, who has worked in her community in the Nevada area to try and block the construction of a gas station in her city. She's now studying engineering at Humboldt State. And Dr. Robin Cooper, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatrists at the University of California, San Francisco, who has been in private practice for over 30 years. She has written on the impacts of climate change on mental health and campaigned for a carbon tax with the Citizens Climate Lobby. Dr. Cooper and Ms. Cohen, welcome to Civic. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Dr. Cooper, I want to start with you. Everyone in California is dealing with all this just overarching, tremendous grief and grief and sadness right now. I mean, all of these things that are out of our control, first COVID, the loss of millions of acres of our forests year after year to these fires supercharged by the climate crisis, and now the collapse in Afghanistan, where millions of women and girls are now being forced back into a second-class status by a fanatical theocracy. How do we as individuals cope with this sense of personal helplessness? These are incredibly important uh, uh, questions and concerns. On top of the things that you've just mentioned, uh, we are facing today the day after the anniversary of basically a climate awakening for many of us. That was the Katrina hurricane. And yesterday, um, New Orleans experienced the same kind of... uh, devastation uh, with Hurricane Ida. So I just want to underscore that these kinds of climate-related disasters are occurring over and over and over in many, many communities. And of course, for us in the Bay Area, we're most attuned to what's happening in our forests close by with the destruction uh, that's caused by these massive wildfires. And today, well, I'm looking out the window now, it's somewhat blue, but it's been quite um, uh, difficult air uh, in our own areas. 
that helplessness, I think, has to be really confronted. It is normal to feel extremely anxious when we're faced with real, real threats to our environment. That's a good thing because that's an awakening to real threats. And the grief that we experience about the, about the degradation to our environment, both from climate change and, as you mentioned, also the threats for international conflict and what's happening in Afghanistan, the grief around that is absolutely normal. We need to be in touch with the, the real feelings of discomfort. We're in trouble when the feelings are so overwhelming and create a sense of kind of apathy or withdrawal or what you've already mentioned, Mel, helplessness. And I think it's really important to be in, a, in an in-between state, tolerating the upset feelings, but not falling into the despair, which creates the helplessness. Because we've got to act now, and what we do now actually will have an impact on how severe the future will be. And I think that's one of the reasons we're here today, to hear from Lily and maybe myself about actually engaging in action as a way to manage anxiety and grief and fend off the sense of helplessness. So, Lily, to that exact point, you've been a part of a core group of activists with 350.org who are taking on some local challenges. You're studying engineering, uh, environmental engineering. How are you and your friends (coughs) dealing with this sense of crisis right now, Uh, this just seeming like overwhelm? I don't know. I have to say, having a community of people around me to support me and say them, you know, like, you know, having us work together in these actions is really beneficial and um, having other people just there to speak to, especially with COVID going on, we're so separated, but that doesn't mean we can't do anything. So for me, it was a huge awakening when I think multiple of these crises just came hitting all at once, which was, you know, of course, COVID, the wildfires, and multitudes of the other, you know, climate justice issues, including the Black Lives Matter movement and many others. But I think in general, taking action is what helps me to get through this. Um, It's the only way for me to get through this. So so Dr. Cooper, in your practice and in the practice of your colleagues, you're with a psychiatric uh, organization that uh, focuses on kind of climate-related anxiety and things and these issues. What are what are people seeing in their practice right now with their patients and yourself included? What I'm seeing in my practice, and I and I just want a, a bit of a disclaimer, I have a small practice. I'm uh, kind of at the tail end of my career and spend so much time on climate that I'm not seeing large numbers of patients. So what I am is the tip of the iceberg. And I will also say that most people don't go to psychiatrists when they're experiencing the uh, devastating feelings around climate grief. So it's the tip of the iceberg, and it's much more pervasive than those who come into my practice. But I have seen people who are working on the front lines with 
a penetrating anxiety about the future in the realm of, of what I call secondary trauma, not those who are just exposed to the fires, but the feelings associated with the awareness and being on the front line. So I'm seeing anxiety. I'm seeing in my regular patients who I see who don't come specifically for climate-related troubles, this um, kind of intrusion at these moments when we're having our most severe difficulties, like with air pollution or the fires, with pregnant women being very frightened about the impact on their unborn babies, and that is of concern. I'm seeing other moms who have been in complete breakdown, distraught, weeping as they confront a feeling that they have of helplessness of protecting their their children. I've also had patients say to me, I'm not going to think about that at all, because if I do, I can't take care of my children and work. And I'm also seeing people who have been sometimes overwrought with grief. And that comes up in my practice. And I know with my colleagues, we are seeing more and more people calling with these distress syndromes and needing to really address the capacity for our mental health system to be able to address these kinds of difficulties. Lily, um, does that sense of climate crisis fear seem to be emerging among other young people, say, in and outside of your support group, especially college-age students? Uh, Yes, I would say it's a pretty big impact. I actually did some research on this um, a little bit and found that the company Seventh Generation did a study and asked questions to um, Gen Z and millennials and all the other generations to ask what what their thoughts are on having children or what their plans for the future or thoughts for the future were because of climate change. And it is a significant impact from what I remember. It was um, at least like 60% were saying that they were, were not considering having children because of the climate crisis or um, the other issues related to the climate crisis. Dr. Cooper, I, at the beginning of the, before the interview started, we both mentioned, uh, talked about the anti-nuclear weapons movement uh, in the 1970s and 80s, when there was this existential dread that we were all going to be immolated in a holocaust of nuclear fire, and that the ecosystem would be completely wrecked and that the world would end. It was, it was a literal sense of despair. Yep. I th- is that the closest uh, historical analogy in recent history you can think of? I, I, for, for me in my lifetime, um, I had that exact same experience when I learned about the potential for nuclear destruction um, as I felt when I learned about the, the impacts of climate change. Yes, I think that they're, co- they're comparable to the kind of facing a kind of existential threat. And, um, and at that moment, historically, just as you, Mel, that was a time of awakening and, um, and putting myself into an activist mode to address the issues of nuclear destruction, just as I think is so important at this point as we face the climate destruction 
that um, that we're facing. Do you think there's a any lesson in what happened there? I mean, certainly there's still a threat. Uh, nuclear weapons still exist. There's still many thousands of them, but they're no longer on a hair trigger. There's no longer so many that the entire biosphere would be destroyed. Certainly human civilization would be destroyed, but we might not take everything with us in a nuclear war. Uh, we went from an era in which the president, Reagan, at the time was joking that the bombing would begin in 10 minutes to a point where he ended up negotiating serious arms control. What Was it the change below that brought that about? And is there any lessons we learned from that uh, struggle that can be applied today in the climate crisis? I think one of the, the lessons then is um, that makes for some similarities and some differences is that um, there was there was a huge threat around international conflict and the potential for using nuclear weapons. And that cooled off historically. And there were international agreements and there was some reduction in nuclear armaments um, uh, that I think lulled us into a sense of security. And I went on with my life. The, uh, one of the organizations I'm a part of, um, Physicians for Social Responsibility, mm-hmm. worked actively during that era, but they've had a persistent interest in paying attention to nuclear issues. I think, and that I think is incredibly important, and I don't think things are as safe in the, in the nuclear era issue as they were during the periods where it was more quiescent. I think the differences for climate is there is not going to be a quieting, a cooling off. I think what we're seeing now this summer is another like, this is going to be persistent. This is going to continue. We are not going to be able to avert and return to a place of comfort. And that's both scary, but it doesn't allow us to pull back in the way that we did around the nuclear issues. Lily, uh, what do you and younger activists today, what models and ideas do you take from the past to apply to your activism? Certainly nonviolence and civil disobedience are tools that have been used for a long, long time. But are there, are there other things that have inspired you about activism in the past that, that help you go forward today? Um, I think what inspires me most is the perseverance of the people from the the activists from the past honestly i think you know a lot of these people had things writing against them including the government including um just society in general with say um the civil rights movement i think that you know the fact that these activists didn't give up even though they were in the toughest situations that they could possibly be in was a real factor in uh, what's pushing us today and also just inspiring us to continue going no matter how bad it may seem to get. I'm speaking with Lily Cohen, youth organizer at 350.org's Bay Area's youth-led mobilization team, and Dr. Robin Cooper, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at University of California, San Francisco. Lily, what are your hopes for the upcoming United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, Scotland at the end of October? And what do you plan to do uh, involved maybe with that or uh, in other actions coming up in the near future? 
Well, I know uh, my group at the 350 Bay Area Mobilizing Team are planning up some actions uh, for prior to that. But in response to specifically what I'm hoping for, I'm hoping that there will be stark um, realizations, especially after the IPCC report, that we need to be taking action now and fast because we don't have as long as we had anticipated. And I think people like myself and younger generations are getting a little pissed off with the current politics as it is, because we want to see big enough change in which we can see ourselves and our future um, children, grandchildren survive and thrive in the environments that we got to enjoy and the past generations got to enjoy. Dr. Cooper, now, the same. Now, I wonder if I could could add something to yes. the meetings, the the international meetings that Lily's just commented on. Please and, do, yeah. Because um, I, I think it's really important. First off, I just like, I'm so glad that Lily is pissed off and using mm-hmm. that pissed offness to, um, to, to, as she says, persevere because this is a long, long process. But in regards to the international meetings, I think there's some things that are real. It's clearly the most important thing that's on our horizon now. But if we let President Biden go to those international meetings empty-handed, with no policies that he can stand on to bring to the international community, we will have lost a major, major opportunity to lead and engage other major international uh, international country, the countries, China, India, the EU, of course. And that, I think, means that we have to support the passage of the reconciliation bill, because that's where most of the climate policies are. And if Biden can't take that to the international meetings, he will be going with his arms tied behind his back. And so I think how we approach policies right here domestically this moment have to be a part of giving him, giving our leaders tools on the international arena. Well, and doesn't that sort of just bring home everything about these existential threats? They're often action is predicated on the action of one or two people, usually white males, who were literally holding these decisions in their hand and playing politics with them. Mm -hmm. And the frustration and anger that no matter how much you go into the streets, it seems like you're not making that change. But the analogy again is that that is in fact what made it happen. The activist from below forced these people who were terrible leaders mm-hmm. to to make change. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping that holds true and that we see progress moving forward. I think that's the only the only tool we really have in our toolbox, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Lily, what do you think? Well, I definitely agree with Dr. Cooper. Um, I think we need to go in there with uh, solidified expectations of what we want to see other countries do. And it's, I mean, coming from California, it's the same thing. You know, we are kind of the representative state in which uh, we make progressive change. 
uh, for the rest of the country. And I think, you know, the United States needs to be that for the other countries as well, because as much as we consume right now in the United States, I think the biggest upcoming impacts are going to be more from the developing nations. And we need to support the developing nations in ways um, mm-hmm. that we haven't been in the past. Yeah, Dr. Cooper, you've been writing specifically over the last couple of years about equity issues around uh, climate leadership, uh, issues that we need to focus on that get kind of short shrift. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, There is uh, what I I say is we're all going to be affected by climate change, but we are not all equally affected. By climate change and the issues of equity and disparity and um, what has been termed environmental justice or climate justice are intricately connected with, um, with uh, fundamental issues of racism in our society and in our world. And those who are poorest, those people of color, Those people who have less access to power are the people who are first and most severely impacted, both on a domestic level and internationally. Um, And so when Lily says, what will we on the international arena do to support other countries? It's the same kind of issue, I think, in our own domestic situation. How do we address those who are most impacted and have the least capacity to influence power and respond to the climate disasters? Lily, one thing I noticed in 350.org was a real commitment to greater equity among the leadership and to bringing in younger people as activists, because it seems a lot of a lot of activist movements, whether it was the anti-nuclear uh, war activist activism that I was in in the in my 20s, most of the, my leaders back then were in their 50s and, and older. Are you pleased with the way that the climate movement is trying to bring greater equity and diversity into its leadership? And what's it like to be part of uh, one of those leadership groups? Um, I'm very happy to see that there is change finally happening in which, you know, old, you know, like people over four, the age of 40 are taking the youth more seriously. And when I call youth, I say like 35 and under, because that's what our mobilizing (laughs) team is uh, categorized as. So um, I think personally myself coming from Marin County, it's a large proportion is people who are retired. So a lot of the climate activists over there are retired. And I can say that in the past, I've kind of felt shut out in some sense because I am younger and because maybe uh, people don't take me as seriously because maybe I don't know as much as them or I don't have the same experiences. But um, I really appreciate groups like 350 Bay Area for uh, creating a mobilizing team specifically for youth voices and integrating our thoughts and ideas into uh, a leadership role because a big part of the mobilizing team was to have them be the mobilizers, be the kind of the um, heads 
for what kinds of activities we want to see for the future. And I'm happy to see that, you know, there are more organizations starting up like, you know, the Sunrise Movement, um, Youth versus Apocalypse. I'm very happy to see that there are people who are um, my age finally getting the voice and, the, um, you know, just getting to be able to speak our voices as it is um, our future and our children's future that really we're speaking on behalf of. And Dr. Cooper, what word would you have for older activists who do bring all of this tremendous experience and knowledge and depth of uh, uh, capacity? What, how do you, what, what, what's your advice to them to make sure that they're allowing the youth to speak? Oh, I think what's really important is to know that everyone who is engaging this has something to bring and that that there, there is a role for the new, fresh, energetic, and pissed off young people. And there's a, a really important place for those older activists and, and new, by age older, people who are involved in this, bringing the, the dedication and the time. Retirees have time. There's a place for everybody and there's not one way of, of approaching this or one solution. And that there's got to be enormous gratitude and respect for all of the different um, players in this. Uh, there's not just one thing. And what I loved about wh what Lily said is the perseverance. This is not going to change tomorrow. And Lily, what would you say uh, as a final saying to people who feel like their grief is turning to despair? What would you say to turn that around? Um, I say that, you know, as much as there is the news out there that climate change is a giant disaster, and in many respects it is, there is a massive amount of, massive amount of hope out there to create a better future. And I think something that I myself studying engineering and, um, and getting much more interested in is finding these alternatives to what we're currently doing. And I think a lot more of that's going to be coming out um, shortly. But I think, I really think the biggest thing to take away is that no matter what, there's something that you can do. And at least, you know, at the end of the day, just think about what what was my little piece or contribution to helping the climate movement? And, you know, if you did that one little thing, I mean, that's, that's great because, you know, <laughs> I think small actions become, um, can become big action. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Cooper, if uh, all of us were your patient and coming in with those symptoms of our grief turning to despair, what would you say? I would say that despair is a permission to disengage. And as much as it may feel awful, it is a protection from actually grappling with solutions. And so put aside the despair, find the areas that you can engage in. Because I think as, as both Lily and I have said, taking action is one of the ways to make a real contribution and also to, to manage those horrific, uncomfortable feelings. 
I've been speaking with Lily Cohen, youth organizer at 350.org's Bay Area's youth-led mobilization team, and Dr. Robin Cooper, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm Mel Baker filling in for Laura Wenis. You've been listening to Civic. Hey, it's Laura. I just wanted to jump in real quick to let you know that Civic is returning from our hiatus. Thanks to all of you who filled out our survey. Your feedback was really important and helped determine our path forward. In our third year, we're making some big changes, focusing on quality over quantity, which means we're going to take more time to pick just the best highlights of every interview and make all of our context and explanations as clear and concise as possible. So we will be publishing just once a week from now on. New episodes as of next week will come out on Thursdays. We'll see you soon.